Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves in the middle of a larger, larger text, and we're going to pull out a piece of it and then talk about the larger text <clears throat> in a minute. This is what is written. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, by faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they'd left behind, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, He has prepared a city for them. The Word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, we do this so often that it sometimes loses its feel, its holiness. That's not a bad thing, for it is in those times that we are called upon to rely on you more, to believe in you more, to trust in you more. Help us to do that very thing today, that as we begin this series and this time together, we might see you in new ways and see ourselves living in new ways and new possibilities. Speak to us, we pray, O oh God, in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so we're starting this series called get real squared it's the second round I guess on the same kind of series we did two years ago if you were here for that and it's always fun to do that At the same time sequels aren't always good as, as good as the original but it's an exciting thing and we're gonna we're gonna look at well we'll get to it in just a second what I want to start off with is I want to ask you to picture something. Picture in your mind a small field 
that sits just on the outskirts of the city. You know what I mean. Not so far away that it's out in the boonies and you can run into town and get whatever you need without too much trouble. Just right in that, that sweet spot, just outside, but the noise of the big city is far enough away, a field. And in the field sits a cute little house with a big front porch and a picket fence around it. And there's a grove of trees just beside the house. And you're sitting there on the porch. And you can hear the leaves rustling and reminding you of the slight breeze that blows across the place. And as you sit there, in the distance, you can hear the faint sound of a coyote yapping at the rising moon coming up over the horizon. It's calm. It's, it's quiet. It's, it's perfect. The promised land. Right? There's just one problem with that. Everyone has the same idea. So what starts out as just one little house becomes a hundred housing developments promising the same exact thing there right on the outskirts of the city. And yet, of course, after some time goes by, those housing developments need services. So here come the supermarkets and the Targets and the Walmarts and the restaurant chains and then you got to move everybody around so you have the stoplights and the larger streets and the cars and the craziness and the congestion and the long wait times and the noise and the mess and the chaos. What happened? very things you were trying to get away from somehow wound up right next door. The paradox of suburban life. The course of the coming weeks, we're going to take an attribute of what it's like to live out here in the suburbs like we do and see what that might teach us in light of scriptures about our faith and how to live. Can the Christian life be lived in the suburbs? doesn't matter if you feel like you live in the suburbs or not, although most of us do, whether it's Richardson, an old suburb, or Murphy and Parker and now Lucas, and who knows, maybe Texarkana eventually become a suburb of Dallas. They say it's going to stretch out that far over the course of the next 50 years. It's amazing. You don't have to live in one to learn and glean some wisdom from what we're going to do together in these coming weeks. So that's what we're going to do. A man by the name of Albert Sue wrote a book called The Suburban Christian, and we're going to quote from it a number of times. It's some of what we're basing or unbasing the series on. And in that book, he, he describes the suburbs this way. He says he calls them the last or the most recent version of the promise of the American frontier. He calls them blank slates 
in which the new residents who move there feel like they can write a completely new story. David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, once described people who moved to the suburbs this way. He called them pioneers that launch out into the great unknown. Boy, that sounds really cool. Launch out into the great unknown, into the suburbs where all the houses are brown. Right? He was kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course. And yet, that vision and promise is compelling. Compelling enough to where over half of Americans now live in the suburbs. Over half. Did you know that? That's a lot of people. Why? Why did we go there? Why are we out here? What are we doing? What are we looking for? Well, what were you looking for when you moved wherever you are right now to wherever you live right now? What, what compelled you to decide to go there? What, what were you looking for? Were you looking for a more affordable place or a bigger place? Were you seeking the promise of a good school or the, or the promise of a safe community? Is that what you were after? Whether you realize it or not, do you think you might have been trying to leave something? Did the neighborhood you left, was it maybe not quite what it once was years ago? Kind of gone downhill, so to speak, whatever that means. Were you leaving something? I often wonder if some of the racial tensions and religious problems that we struggle with today might have actually been avoided somewhat or even altogether if we at some point along the way had finally figured out to stop trying to find community away from each other and instead start trying to tr create community wherever we are, wherever we go, no matter where that is. I just, I wonder that. That's part of our problem and we're feeling the pain. What are you looking for? In our reading from Hebrews today, we learn about the, or reminded about the faith of Abraham. He set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, we're told. We're also told that he never made it. He never made it. And he had no clue where he was going. Not a clue. Now, before we go any further, it would be good for me to remind you that when you read the book of Hebrews, you're reading a different kind of book in the Bible. It's not a letter like one of Paul's letters to the churches. It's not a story like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their gospel story or even Genesis that tells stories. Hebrews is a sermon preached by a preacher, and so he's making an argument. That's what sermons do at some level, make an argument. He's making an argument. And in so, in making an argument, he's lifting up people who exemplify the type of faith 
that he describes at the beginning of chapter 11. We find this, this passage we just read sits right in the middle of this long list of people who are examples of the kind of faith that the Hebrews preacher defines at the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning of chapter 11, the preacher defines faith this way. It's a famous line. We, most of us know it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, Professor Tom Long takes that statement and says a more literal way to translate that would be to say faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the testimony of things not, not seen. That that's a more literal way to translate it. And in fact, the reason the preacher lifts it up is to point out to us that faith has two qualities, an inward assurance and an outward force. Inwardly, people of faith have a, an assurance, a competence, that even when all hell seems to be breaking loose all around us, that somehow the promises of God, God's promises of peace, mercy, and justice can still be trusted, even when all hell seems to be breaking loose. An inward assurance. And it is very powerful. But that's not all. Faith also has an outward force. The belief that those same promises of justice, mercy, and peace are actually active in the world. And God is actually calling upon us to participate in those active promises in the world around us. So an inward assurance or confidence an outward testimony or conviction, faith. And once the preacher defines that and feels comfortable enough, that's when he starts lifting up all these people, these examples of people who have lived that kind of faith. People who knew, no, who were convinced, start to finish, top to bottom, inside and out, that faith is not about believing in anything we create. Faith is not something we place in the things we create. Faith instead is placed in something much more compelling. The promise of a God who ushers upon us peace, mercy, and justice and then calls us to participate in those very things out in the world around us. People who live that kind of faith lived a faith of letting go, letting go. It's interesting. We spend a great deal of our time and energy trying to create that for ourselves, trying to create the, the perfect place, the, the perfect life, when all along faith has been trying to tell us that we already have it. We've already been given it. We run from place to place and new community to new community saying, here it is, here it is over, no, no, this one, this is whether we move out and put all our energy into moving out into the suburbs or this newest trend of moving back into the city, that's it, I've found it, it's over here, follow me, it's here. We look for it everywhere we go in whatever we do 
And the reason that the Hebrews preacher is lifting up the people that he does is because they don't do that. They don't run from place to place grasping at a fleeting reality saying this is it or that's it or this is it. They know they already have it. What we can learn from them is that the ability to fully and completely trust in God is the promised land. It is. Still, we try to create it for ourselves. We, we can't help it. We crave control. We crave it. Can't get rid of it. Years ago, back in the 50s, I would guess, before he died... Walt Disney had a vision for the perfect community. He had a plan for a community of 20,000. 20,000 evidently was a magic number for the founder of the Magic Kingdom. 20,000 people who would live under a great big dome and would be able to <clears throat> travel between skyscrapers on high-speed monorails, so no need for cars and congestion and all of that. In this plan, there was going to be no slums, no poverty, no racial tension, no tension whatsoever. It was to be perfect, a utopia kind of place. He died before he could put any more energy into that vision trying to become a reality. Interestingly enough, though, in the 1990s, the Disney Corporation began to develop 10,000 acres just south of Disney World in Florida. The plan was for a population of, guess what, 20,000, just like Walt Disney's original dream. They named the town Celebration. You may have heard of it. You may have been there. Still there. And when it opened, it was touted as the absolute best that a planned community could offer. Everything was thought of. Nothing was left to chance. Everything you needed in town was within walking distance, so you had no need to drive your car all through the community and congest the streets and create noise and smells. And didn't have to do that. You could walk wherever you needed to go. And there were mixed spaces, there were parks, storefronts were placed just in the right spot. It was perfect. The promised land, finally. Right? Well, when people started moving there, they discovered that they liked their cars a little too much, and even though things were within walking distance, they drove anyway. So cars were all over, just like everywhere else. And it wasn't too long before the residents started to complain about all the restrictions, you know, of what color blue your house could and couldn't be. Not blue, what color blue, what kind of hue. It had this color. Some of us understand that these days, right? And how many trees you can plant in your yard so as not to completely obscure the picturesque aesthetic of 
the city and the community and what kind of plants, not that kind of azalea, this kind of azalea. They began to be frustrated. It seems that the micromanaging strategy of Disney had turned Celebration Town into something less than paradise. As the residents began fond, grew fond of saying, the pixie dust wears off quickly here. That experiment shows us again what we should already know. And every time we grasp at the straw of trying to control and create for ourselves the perfect life, it may be there for a little while, but it's fleeting. That is not where our faith is to be placed. No matter how much we crave control. A number of weeks ago, I shared with you what a friend of mine has been going through this past year, Carl Travis, the senior pastor at First Pres in Fort Worth, dealing with serious blood clots in his legs and all up in, they've threatened his life more than once. We've been praying deeply for him. It couldn't, can't be explained. They don't know why it was happening. Interestingly enough, these past couple of months, he's been getting better, and it looks actually as if he's out of the woods. He's been back at work. He preached for the first time a couple of Sundays ago. He is a walking miracle. And I want to share with you something he wrote during some of the darker moments in this past year. This is what he says. This seems to me a workable definition of the Christian life. Letting go in the hope of getting better. Letting go of the illusion of control, letting go of the distraction that we are left to our own devices, that we must chart our own course, that we must ourselves always know the way forward, that if we do not provide for ourselves what we need, no one will. Letting go of the idea that our lives are mostly about us. Indeed, he writes, we crave control, but we need the God who actually has it. If control is illusion, then faith is the soul-lifting certainty that when we finally let go and close our eyes, we will not be alone. In the end, when we wake up, it's all going to be all right precisely because we are not in control. That's how God makes us better. Stripped of the illusion that we are in charge, we have a far greater chance of seeing and participating in what God is already doing. We do crave control, don't we? We crave it. Suburban life and the suburban movement of the past 50 years has has been one of the latest attempts at our desire to try to control things, to try to create the perfect life for ourselves, the promised land, and yet faith strips us of that illusion that we are in charge. When we run from place to place and grasp at the fleeting moments that we've created by saying, here it is or there it is, come, I found it, here's the perfect life over here, we get distracted from the very thing faith calls us to do, and that is to trust in the promise 
of God. For the ability to do that is the promised land. Do me a favor. As you're running about in the frenzy of suburban or even city life, let go of the notion that we can create the perfect life for, our, for ourselves. Work on placing your trust in the God that has already given it to us. And then do this. Every day, every hour, every second, look long and hard for the promise of peace, mercy, and justice. And be part of it. Be part of it. Amen.